in our weeks leading up to Easter, we're following the life of Jesus as told in the Gospel of Mark. And here we're just a few days before his death and then his resurrection. So I want us to take a look at this story today from the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. So we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, which is this focus on the kingdom and the cross. Jesus comes and he proclaims the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign over the world. And the original plan from the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and he placed Adam and Eve in the garden was that he would rule, God would rule over the earth through his servant kings. But the story of the Bible is his servant kings trying to take his place and rule instead of him. And so God sends Jesus to redeem his servant kings and then allow them to rule over a renewed creation. And so Jesus is preaching about the kingdom of God, this rule and this reign of God through his people. And he's moving along, and the story of Mark moves along, and all in the while, the city of Jerusalem is in the background. And so a few weeks ago, we found Jesus at last entering the city of Jerusalem, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, this symbol of becoming the king, of becoming the Messiah, God's chosen one. And he comes in, and then the next day, he goes into the temple, the symbol of Jewish pride of their nation, of all their religious service. And he goes into the temple and he, he flips over tables and there's a scene where he curses a fig tree. But it's all this talk about what Jesus is doing is acting out a reminder that God has called his people to bear fruit in the world. And their failure to do that and the judgment that will come on them. And so that's in chapter 11 and chapters 12 and 13. There's some various teachings that Jesus gives. And now we find Jesus just two days before his crucifixion. And he's in Bethany, this little town about two miles outside of Jerusalem, a place that he spent much time. It was where his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from. And we find him in the home of a man named Simon the leper. But as we heard in the story, there's kind of this little setup to it. Because as we go into that story, before we go into that, we're reminded that not everybody appreciates Jesus. That Jesus isn't popular with everyone. In fact, it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming. They were sneaking. They were trying to figure out a way to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. To arrest him in secret. To find a way to kill him. And so they're plotting. But they don't want to do it during the Passover. They're not sure what to do because of all the people around. So that's the setting for this scene. And so what's happening even what Mark is doing to us is saying, keep that in the back of your head. Keep in the back of your head that there are people scheming against Jesus. Keep in the back of your mind that not everyone is on Jesus' side. Keep in the back of your mind that Jesus is going to be crucified. So that there's this death, there's this darkness that's hanging over the whole story. And then it says, while he's in Bethany reclining at the table, and so this was the, the Middle Eastern way, they would have these low tables and they would kind of lay on their sides where they were propped up on their elbow and they'd be eating. It says, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And so she comes in with this jar and probably the smallest jar made of nard and nard would have been made from a couple different ingredients, this ingredient called spike and then another called medalla, which came from Nepal. So this was stuff that traveled over long distances. And now I'm not much into cologne and perfumes and stuff, but 
I remember years ago, I'd walk through the department stores and you'd see the little bottles of perfume. And some of them were, they get expensive for these little jars. Well, what we're told in this story here is that this jar of perfume was worth 300 denarii. Now, what's a denarii, we say? A denarii was about a day's wages, a day's wages for a, for a laborer, for a working person. And so, um, and it says we're 300 denarii, so who's good at math? So we say, so let's imagine we make $8 an hour. That's kind of bottom of the scale, right? Or maybe a little bit less. $8 an hour for a, a laborer. So eight hours a day, $64 a day, right? Times 300 days, what, $19,200, right? Something like that. Okay, so a little over $19,000 bottle of perfume. Or just think about what did you earn in a year? When if you, if you ever worked or if you have, you know, if your spouse works or whatever, think about what you make in a year. That's how much this little bottle of perfume cost. Every single dollar you made in a year goes to buy this one little jar of perfume. And then it says that she took this perfume and she breaks it open. In other words, there's no putting it back. There was no reason. She could have just pulled a little stopper. You know, if I had a $19,000 bottle of perfume, I'd use little tiny bits of it. It's like, okay, get the eyedropper out. Now she just smashes this jar and she starts to pour it on Jesus' head. And this was not uncommon to do. There was often a thing that when during festivals and during celebrations, people would come into the home and, and the host of the house would pour oil on your head. I'm kind of glad they don't do that anymore. I don't know. Sounds kind of messy, kind of, but, but this was, even if you go back in the book of Psalms, there's a psalm that talks about you know, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity and it talks about the oil flowing down Aaron's beard and down his hair. That's kind of the picture of it. So they would come into the house and instead of shaking hands or maybe putting a garland on somebody or lay on somebody, they dump some oil on your head. And so this woman comes and she takes this, this spike nard, this nard, this nineteen, this thousand dollar bottle of perfume and she smashes it open. She says, I'm going to use it all. I'm not holding anything back. It's all going. And she starts to pour it over Jesus' head. And it just starts running over his head and just dripping down his clothes and pours all over him. And then we're told in the story that there's some people watching. Probably some members of the church council. Some of the elders and they're watching and they're saying, What is she doing? $20,000 $20,000 just go oh, we could have done so much with there are poor people out in the streets there are homeless people we could have we could have had 50 food trucks for that much we could have filled our food pantry over and over again we could have housed the homeless for four weeks in the city of Mesquite look at all the things we could have done and she just dumped it all out it's like somebody came into church today And they said, oh, I've got $20,000 and I'm just going to buy a whole bunch of flowers and I'm going to build this giant flower thing and we're going to put it out in the parking lot. How long would some fresh flowers last out in our parking lot right now? Not very long, right? It would be really pretty for a little while and then they'd all be dead. And and there might be some of us sitting there thinking, oh, think of what you could have done with all that money. And I'm trying to imagine how I would feel. 
If somebody came in and said, oh, I want to give some money to the church, I'd be like, oh, that's great. We could, we, there's a lot of different ministries we could do. What I really want to do is I just want to dump it out on the ground. I'm just going to take it out in my act of worship as I'm going to take that big check and I'm just going to put a match under it and I'm going to light it up. I'm going to dump it out. And so I think we can sympathize with the people there watching, thinking, why would you do that? Why would you take all that value? You could have put a little bit on Jesus' head. You know, just give him a little bit and say, okay, that's good, Jesus. Now let's use the rest and help the poor. And so I can sympathize a little bit with what's going on. I can understand where this crowd is coming from. And so they rebuke her. That's a good church word, isn't it? I mean, where else do you ever rebuke somebody? I mean, church, we, we, we rebuke people all the time. So we, they, they get on her and they say, well, why did you do that? But Jesus jumps and says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done something amazing. It's like, yeah, it is. I mean, that is an incredible act. But then he says this strange thing. He says, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And so now sometimes this is the idea of like, oh, the poor you'll always have with me. It's not an excuse to not help the poor. That's not what Jesus is getting at. Jesus isn't saying, well, yeah, the poor are always going to be here, so you can give to them. Because Jesus was deeply concerned for the poor. God, throughout the scriptures, has this heart and this passion to, to care for the poor. But Jesus is saying, this is a moment in time. And I am physically with you right now. And she is doing something to recognize my physical presence right now. And Jesus is saying, yes, you're going to have the poor with you, which means you need to be thinking about the poor all the time. You need to be caring for them. And one of the great ways we can worship Jesus is by caring for the poor. But Jesus isn't giving us an excuse here to say, oh, well, I'm going to do this stuff because I don't really need to take care of the poor because the poor will always be there. Jesus is acknowledging the reality of the poor, but he's saying at this moment in time, she did the right thing. She did what she could. Which is just kind of interesting language. But if we were to go back to the end of chapter 12 and the story I did with the kid about this widow who comes in and it uses almost that same language. It says they gave out of all their wealth, but she out of her put in everything, all that she had to live on. In other words, she did what she could. And so part of what Mark does is takes us back to that other story. The story of a woman who gives her two coins and she gives all that she could. And so this woman, which it's interesting, we don't know who she is. We don't know her name, but she says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial, which is kind of an odd thing. So that was part of the burial process. So in ancient times, we have different means of doing it a little bit today, but in ancient times when you prepared a body for burial, when someone died, you would pour spices and anoint their body with oil. It wasn't to preserve it. Anyone want to take a guess why you did that? What happens to a dead body after a couple days? Yeah, they stink, right? And so, so part of it was they would put these oils and these perfumes in this nard stuff you can imagine just as she poured this out, the whole house just filled with the scent of this. And it was the same way. This nard, spike nard would often be used 
to anoint bodies for burial because it had a strong smell and it would cover up, try and take away some of the smell of the death. So I don't know if the woman knew what was going on in Jesus' life, but Jesus is pointing it to it, saying, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body to prepare me for my burial. Now we know the rest of the story, and Jesus has been talking about the rest of the story. Jesus has been saying, I'm going to be handed over to the, by the religious leaders. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. He's already told his disciples at least three times that were recorded. If we've read the rest of the story, we know exactly what happens. But I want us to jump ahead, and we'll cheat a little bit here, in the rest of the story. And so, spoiler alert, Jesus dies and then comes back. Right? God raises him from the dead. But there's a significant thing that happens. Jesus dies on a Friday. He's crucified on a Friday. He's taken down from the cross. But the Sabbath is coming. Now, we think, well, wait a minute. If he dies on Friday, Sabbath isn't until Saturday. The way the Jewish Sabbath worked was it went from sundown to sundown. So the Sabbath, which would have been the, the um, se- seventh day of the week on Saturday, started at sundown on Friday. So sundown Friday is the start of the Sabbath. Well, Jesus dies late in the day, and so they don't have time to anoint his body with oils. They don't have time to prepare his body for burial on Friday. So they take him and they put him in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of the tomb. And then early on the first day of the week, early on Sunday morning, the women come, and they're coming to do what? Anoint and prepare his body. They're coming with the spices to prepare his body on that first, on that Sunday morning, on that first day of the week. They come and the, the stone is rolled away and Jesus has risen from the dead. So they come with the spices and the oils to anoint his body, but there's no need because he's already risen. But there is also no need because she has already anointed and prepared his body for burial. And so in some sense, when she does this, she's preparing his body and saying, I only need to put the oils on you as a living body because you will not need it when you are buried because you will rise again from the dead. So when it says, I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached, well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins and that God raised him from the dead and made him to be king over all. And so by her anointing his body, She's saying you're going to be buried, but you're not going to need the spices that a dead body needs because you're not staying in the grave. Let me say that again. She anoints him living because he will not need them when he is dead because he is not going to stay dead because God will raise him from the dead. So whenever the gospel is preached, we're reminded of that. Whenever the gospel is preached, we're reminded that Jesus did not stay in the tomb, but was raised again. And so then it jumps back to Judas, one of the twelve, went to the priest to betray Jesus. And so there's this little sandwich that goes on. But I want us to think about those two things. The first is how the woman responded to this. So we have Judas on the one hand who does what? He betrays Jesus in order to do what? They were delighted to hear him and promised to give him money. 
He sacrifices Jesus for a little bit of material gain. He sacrifices that friendship. He sacrifices his rabbi. He sacrifices his loyalty. He gives up that for the sake of a little bit of money. The woman, on the other hand, she gives all that she has. She gives this costly act of worship in which we remember the costly sacrifice of Jesus. A costly act of worship which reminds us of the costly act of Jesus. So as we think on Jesus and what he's done for us, as we think about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died and was raised again and is now King of kings and Lord of lords, that God has made him king and that we live as his servant kings, we ask ourselves, what does it look like for us to worship Jesus? Do we come and offer costly acts of sacrifice? No, I'm not suggesting you come and you pour out a year's wages. But when we worship, do we hold back? Or do we truly give everything? And that's in part what the woman did. She says, she did what she could. She poured out. She did it all. And she focused on who Jesus was and what he had done. And she said, I'm going to give everything I have, all that I am, to Jesus. What does your worship cost? Are you willing to give all that you have and all that you are as an act of worship? I don't know what that would look like for each and every one of us. But each one of us, it would be something different. To say, I'm going to give all that I have. The second thing we realize is just a reminder of what the good news is. And so just as this woman poured it all out, Jesus pours out his life for us. And the good news is contained in that. And we remember what this woman has done because the good news we remember is that Jesus died and God raised him from the dead for our sins and for our forgiveness. And that's why we worship. We say, well, why do we worship? We worship because it, we're responding to what God has done. We're responding to this incredible news. And this woman in some way, maybe through the power of the Spirit, in some way was gifted with that and was able to respond to who Jesus was and to proclaim the good news. And so as we prepare and we come to the communion table, we remember that good news. Remember the good news that Jesus died and was raised again and offers us forgiveness and new life. And because of that, he invites us to worship him. His costly sacrifice invites us to costly worship. So as we worship whether it's during the week or on a Sunday morning, whenever we come to worship, may we be reminded of this woman who poured out all that she had for Jesus because he is the one who poured out his life for us. Amen.